For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. I'm Pastor Brooks. I will be, uh, be bringing you the message. This is week number three in our series uh, in Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. So last week in the second message, Jason was, was, was demonstrating from the scriptures here in, in the first few verses. Let me bring that up here. Uh, so here's, here's what we covered last week. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what Paul is, 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 is showing us here is like Timothy has come to to the church in Thessalonica, and he's brought back this report to Paul, and he's seeing the evidence of faith. Because you recall that Timothy, or brother Paul, was concerned, this new, new group of Christians, they're heavily persecuted, and he's very concerned about how they're doing. So he brings this report back. They have works of faith, they have labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, with full conviction. So the fruit of the gospel, the works of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness and hope is a result of, of having received the gospel in power. So the gospel came not only in word, not only in word, but, but also in power with, with the Holy Spirit and full conviction. So, here's a question for us. If the gospel is powerful, and it is, Paul states in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So the gospel is powerful. It came to the Thessalonians in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. So if the gospel is so powerful, why don't more people embrace it? Now, we have a small group because it's the Super Bowl tonight, and the rest of the idolaters are away worshiping idols. So we, we understand that, but, but it's presumptuous to believe that anybody and everybody that comes to a church service on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening is in fact a Christ follower. There may be some of you who are checking this out for the first time, and this is a good place, this is a safe place for you to wrestle, to doubt, to have questions about belief. So not all of you are, are here, uh, but so the, uh, worshiping Christ. So the question is, why, if it's so powerful, why don't more people embrace it? And 
for those who do believe, for those who do believe, why do those who do believe live as if they don't? So, let's little crowd participation here. How many of you recognize there are times in your life when you don't bear the fruit of the gospel? It doesn't come forth in power. Anybody besides me? Okay, so this is a common scenario. So this is a common scenario. So whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's your kids, whether it's your brothers, sisters in Christ, it's a common scenario for those who do believe the gospel not to experience the power of said gospel, right? So the question is, why is this true? Why is this true? The answer is idolatry. The answer is idolatry. Now, think this through. This is a weird statement for someone to make in, in February of 2020. I mean, Paul writes to this church over 2,000 years ago, and we live in a very scientific age, a very modern age, and when we hear the word idolatry, we think of, we think of ancient paganism, superstitious people, people that are uneducated. But I would contend with you this, tonight to, to, to reconsider that. You may not have little golden calves and dancing around them in your living rooms and so forth. You may not have little Hindu idols and so forth. But understand that idolatry is a very modern thing. It's a very ancient thing. It's a very sophisticated thing. All people, all people are subject to idolatry, including myself, including myself. So uh, idolatry is very, very rampant, case in point. Jason Blackley, who was one of the campus pastors here at Old Brick, is currently, as we speak, in Kansas City, worshiping his idol. <laughs> worshiping his idol. That is, that's, now, in all fairness, I'm throwing him under the bus because he's my friend and it's fun. Uh, but he was at the first service this morning. So he did, he did come with his entire family and he worshiped with the body of Christ with his chief shirt on and then hopped in the car and bolted to Kansas City. That's where he's from, so it's only natural. By the way, if, if those of you who are confused, he doesn't actually play for the Kansas City Chiefs. That is a photoshopped, very roughly photoshopped imprint of Jason. So he's not really the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. He won't be, won't be playing tonight. But, uh, you know, all joking aside, all joking aside, idolatry is a very, very real thing. We're going to look at three things tonight. Um, and full disclosure, Paul is not necessarily teaching us about these three things. But here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the nature of idolatry. We're going to look at the nature of idolatry. We are going to take a look at the consequences of idolatry and how to be free from idolatry. What Paul does show us, what he says explicitly is, here's all the good things that's being reported about you. And then he states, you've turned from idols to the living God. That's a result. Those good things. Here's the thing that robs us of the power of the gospel. When we are sucked back into idolatry, well, that presumes we were in it in the first place. So we're going to see how that works. We're going to see how that works. So please turn your Bibles to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, we have the scripture reading, and uh, we'll, we'll pray and, and get started. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel, which is powerful. 
But as, as we've experienced in our own lives, there's times when we experience that power and there's times when we, we feel no power whatsoever and we feel, uh, we feel weighed down and burdened by our own failures and our own uh, inability, uh, Lord, to bear any fruit because we can't. And Lord, we desire to bear fruit. We desire to experience the power of the gospel, all that you have for us. And so, Father, we're, help, we're asking you to show us the truth here in the scriptures so that we might be set free we might live to glorify you. May Christ be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so let's take a look at the text here. What we have in verses five through seven, verses five through seven, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So it's come in power. You know, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. You became imitators of us and the Lord. For you received the word with much affliction. So we'll stop right there. So Paul's already stated, we looked at this last week, there are three things that he's seen. He's seen, rather Timothy has seen, that's been reported. Great works of faith, sacrifice or labor of love, and remaining steadfast or enduring in the hope of Jesus Christ. So he said, I've seen these three things. Now, now he's adding on praise. Here's some more things that I'm seeing. One of the things that I, that, that's being reported is you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now what is he alluding to here? He's alluding to the fact that when he came and he preached and he taught, these individuals became disciples. So the Great Commission, Jesus commissioned the apostles and the church to go into all nations and to make disciples of all nations, every ethnic, every people group. And a disciple is a follower of Christ. The Apostle John says, if you are, a, if you are going to follow Christ, he says, you must, you must walk as Jesus walked. So in other words, there's an imitation factor here. There's an imitation factor. So Timothy is a disciple of Paul, and he imitates Paul, because Paul imitates Christ. So what he's seeing here is he's saying, listen, I see discipleship being played out. Here's one of the sad realities of, I would say, American Christianity, which is, which is not, uh, not how it should be, is in America, uh, we tend to be a very individualistic culture. We listen to podcasts, we read books, maybe we come to a worship service, and then we leave that worship service, and it's very common to not be plugged in, to not have relationships with other Christians who hold you accountable, who spur you on, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That, that becomes something which Americans, they think, well, I can, I can do without that. I just want to go to the worship service or listen to the sermon or sing in the praise uh, during the praise time. But what he's saying here is, no, you're, you're living life together and you are imitators of us as we are imitators of the Lord. So there's a discipleship component here. The next thing that we see here, he says, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now those two statements don't typically go together in our, in our, in our context. We don't typically say you're receiving much affliction and you're full of joy. Those seem like they shouldn't be together in the same sentence. So here's what this is saying. What Paul is saying here is you have the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. One of the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So this is not a joy which comes from having pleasant or positive circumstances. This is a fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus comes to his disciples, and he disciples them for for three years, and he's preparing them. He's preparing them for his death, his burial, and his resurrection in John chapter 14, 13 through 17. So in this very long discourse with them, right before he's arrested in John 15, he says, I came that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be complete. So it's not a trick question. What does Jesus want for you as a disciple? What does he want? Joy, complete joy, complete joy. Now, the very next chapter, in the same conversation, he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to be taken. But I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And he says, the world will hate you because it hated me first. So here's what he says. I'm going to give you my joy, and your joy is going to be complete as you are pummeled, as you are persecuted. As you are chased out of the synagogues, as the world hates you, you will simultaneously have joy. And the Thessalonians here are actually evidence that Jesus meant what he said. They are receiving the gospel in great affliction. They are persecuted. And what, what are they displaying? The joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't deter them that they're being persecuted they still have this joy. So they're being proven to be disciples as they follow the example of Paul. They are, they are man, they're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which is here is described as joy in the midst of affliction. And then, and then lastly, in, in verse 7 and, and 8, so that you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even need to say anything. Their witness is, is unparalleled. Their witness, they, they cannot, the, the word of God is being spread because they are demonstrating and declaring the gospel to one another. They're demonstrating and declaring the gospel to their community. And, and, and in the region, it's just being reported. Have you heard about these, these Thessalonians? These, these individuals who are now following the way, this, this, this Jewish rabbi, Jesus, who they said rose from the dead. They, they stand fast under persecution. They have this joy about them. It's being reported everywhere. So here's what Paul's just done in these first seven to eight verses. He said, listen, I've heard this report. You guys are blowing the lid off of of your community. The gospel has arrived, and it's arrived with power. With power. So if we received a letter from Paul, would it read like verses 2 through 8? Or would it read like Revelation chapter 3? We look more a little bit like the church in Laodicea. A little bit apathetic, a little bit lukewarm. We're very affluent. I don't know. I don't know. But I do believe, I do believe that as you and I have testified, there seems to be a consistent lack or the, the power of the gospel is not, doesn't seem to be on display as maybe the Thessalonians. Uh, it's on display there. Why? Why? Let's take a look at the next verse. 
for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So, so they received Paul, they received Timothy, they received Titus, they received the whole group that had come in there. And then it says, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, now let's stop just for a second here. Here's what Paul's done. Earlier in the chapter, in verses 4 and 5, he said the gospel came to you not only in words, but in power. And then he bookends it at the end of the chapter, and he says, you turned from idols to the true and the living God. Those two bookends... Those two bookends are, the, are different ways of saying the same thing. The gospel came in power. How do I know that? Because you turn from idols to the true and living God. Now, here's where we get lost. We get lost because we don't consider ourselves a culture steeped in idolatry. I mean, we just don't. That's not how we think. Now, maybe if we lived in India where Hinduism was prevalent and is prevalent and, and, and there are millions of gods and you can see people literally performing uh, idolatry. There's little statuettes, little figurines and they're, they're making sacrifice. We, we would think, oh, okay, I could see that. But in America, we're like, or, or, or Western civilization, we, we don't tend to think of idolatry. So we need to understand what is the nature, what is the nature of, of idolatry. I think probably the best text to, to concisely help us understand that is Romans chapter 1. So the nature of idolatry, if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, let's take a, let's take a look at that. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory. Catch this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, we'll stop right there just for a second. Here's the basic essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is a glory exchange. A glory exchange. So glory... It, it means the, the majesty, the beauty, the, the excellency of Christ, of God. And in the Old Testament, when you see the word glory, it, 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 it is, has, a, has a connotation. It means weightiness, heaviness. So when, when you ascribe glory to something, what we're saying is this matters. So the more the glory, the more it matters. The, he the heavier, the weightier it is. That makes sense? So here's what's happened. What Paul's saying is that mankind everywhere, this is not relegated to the ancient past, this is true of our time, has exchanged the glory of that which matters most, which is the infinite creator of the universe. We've exchanged that which truly matters for things which are at best derivative or secondary of importance. It's a glory exchange. So instead of ascribing worth and majesty and glory to God, we look to other things and we ascribe worth and majesty and glory to them. It's a glory exchange. Make sense? Exchanging glory. Let's, let's keep going. Let's take a look at what Paul says next here. He says, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, the origin of sinful behavior is due directly to the exchange of glory. In other words, there is no sinful behavior without, first of all, engaging in idolatry. It's the sin beneath the sin. It's, it's what gives root to every stupid thing I've ever done or every clever thing I've ever done, which I, which I did in secret. Any sinful act, thought, attitude, or behavior is essentially a byproduct, a fruit of having exchanged the glory of God for something else. That's the essence of idolatry. Now let's take a look at, uh, so when Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, they have a specific cultural understanding of idolatry. So here's how they would have understood you have turned from idols. They would have names for their idols. There was, a, there was an idol or a god for every facet of ancient life. Now these are the Latin or Roman names for, for the Greek gods. So Jupiter is Zeus uh, and, 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 and Venus is Aphrodite. So they have different names, but they're the same, same thing. So you have here, we have uh, Jupiter, the, the god, the god and protector of the state. God and protector of the state. You have Mercury, the god of financial gain. You have Mars, the god of war. Ceres, the goddess of agriculture, grain, and the love of a mother has for a child. You have Bacchus, the god of wine production or the party god. You have, that's the Iowa City's god. So then you have, you have Venus, the goddess of sexual pleasure, goddess of sexual pleasure and love. So if, if you were living in that day and age, and let's say that you were a merchant, which of those gods would be the chief god that you would offer sacrifices to? Okay, probably Mercury. Now, if you were a sailor and you owned a vessel and you transported goods, so you were a merchant, but you also had a shipping company that took, that, that, that took goods across the Mediterranean Sea, you would probably also make sacrifices to another god that's not listed there, Poseidon the god of the sea. So you make these sacrifices to appease these gods because those gods, through whatever they control, you hope that they will enrich or enhance your life. That's the nature of idolatry. You make sacrifices to these said gods because you hope to get something from them. It's not complicated. Make sense? Now you look at that and you say, yeah, that's so superstitious and that's so anti-scientific and, and it's so ancient and it's just uneducated people and we don't really do that anymore. Actually, the only thing that's different from then and now is we've cut out the middleman. We just, we don't need to go to Jupiter. We will just make the state our God. Whatever you, so you, and so what, look at those and think about our own culture and where people derive their hope and their identity. Now we're starting to see the modern components, actually the substance of idolatry. You know, just be, you don't need a little figurine or statue. You don't have to name, name it. You just have to have your hope placed in any one of these things. So you have the state 
These are individuals who are looking to, I mean, just look at the, the absolute, sometimes borderline lunacy that people have towards politics and their hope. Uh, oh, shoot, I turned my phone off. Take me too long to load. Somebody sent me a picture. Somebody sent me a picture of a sign that said, um, oh gosh, what did it say? Peace on Earth and Bernie Sanders. What is, what is the connection there? What are we supposed to make the connection? Where else have you heard peace on earth? That's the Christmas message. So do you understand the clear connotation? What does that make Bernie? It makes him the Messiah. Do you see how people are being idolatrous in terms of their understanding of political saviors? I don't care which end of the spectrum you're on, conservative or, or liberal. Both of them do it. Some of you are like, you've just offended me because I don't really care. Oh my gosh. It's so beyond my caring right now. People are just rampantly idolatrous. If Paul cared about offending people when he walked into a town to speak about idols, he wouldn't walk into any town. Because idolatry has been everywhere and it always has been. It's not, we're not different than Corinth. We just don't have statues for our gods. So you look at all of these and financial gain, that's an obvious. War is a little bit different. I wouldn't say that we have a lot of hawks here. Some of you are not beating your sh swords on your and shields and saying, let's go kill people. But in terms of, in terms of uh, doing whatever's necessary for your tribe to gain or maintain power, oh, we're all about that. We're all about that. Food, family, the weekend, Party, sex, romantic love. You, you, you kind of get the idea. Kind of get the idea. So it's, it's quite prevalent. Let's take a look at this. This is a very, very helpful, lengthy quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, which describes uh, the essence of idolatry. So let's take, let's take a look at that. I think it'll help us. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a preacher from London. He died probably in the mid-70s. He said, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol's anything that's, the cent that's central in my life, anything that seems to me to be essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and attention, my energy and my money, anything that holds a controlling position in my life as an idol. That last sentence is really important. Anything that holds a controlling position. See, that's the nature of idolatry. The nature of idolatry in this glory exchange, whatever you exchange your glory for, that's what controls you. Tight-fisted control. We don't see it that way. We don't see it that way, but that's how it actually works. Now let's take a look at the consequences. The consequences of idolatry. Question, why do people sin? Now, there's, a, there's an obvious answer, which is true, but it's incomplete. So if you think, well, people sin because they're sinners, you would be correct. That is true, but, but play this out. Play this out. If, if that's why we sin, then there's no hope. There's no hope. So for the addict, for the person who's addicted to all forms of sexual deviancy, for the person who's addicted to uh, alcohol, to, for the person who is, who is materialistic and it's ruined their family. If the reason we sin is just because we're by nature and choice sinners, 
then there's no hope. So it's not untrue that we sin because we're sinners, but if you are in Christ, Jesus says that you have been set free. You have been set free. Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is dead to sin and he is free from the control of sin. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, you have been set free in Christ for freedom's sake. So there's a sense in which, yes, we struggle with sin. We're not ever going to be perfect until we're reunited with Christ in glory. But there's a sense in which we can walk in freedom. So it's not quite enough to simply say, oh, we're sinners, therefore we sin. Now I'm talking about why are we controlled by sin. The reason we're controlled by sin is because we struggle with idols, even today. Even today. Now, let's take a look at, uh, at, take a look at how, how this works. How this works. Um, let's see. Yeah. Paul explains it this way in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were, what's that word? You were enslaved, controlled, dominated. You were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. What he's referring to? Idols. He's talking about idolatry. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Okay, what he's doing here is he's saying, listen, you've been set free from all that stuff. Why are you going back? Now, what does that imply? It implies that those who have been set free can be ensnared to the influence of idols. It's, it's easy to get tripped up into. It's easy to be tripped up into. Here's the thing. You and I never sin, never sin, without first committing idolatry. You have never had a sinful act that wasn't first preceded by a violation of the commandment not to worship other gods. Now, I'm not saying that you named said gods. didn't say you bowed to Venus or Poseidon or anything like that. But when you elevated something which was, which was of the created order or, or some principle, when you elevated financial gain or the approval of others or, or uh, the desire to be loved by other people, when you elevate that to ultimate status, you made that your God, and then you sinned. Always. There's never an exception to that rule. I challenge you to find a sin that you've ever done that wasn't first preceded by idolatry. It's not possible. It's not possible. So that's, that's, just, that's just human nature. So let's, the reality is we give control to whatever we worship. Whatever we worship, whatever's most important to us, we give control to that. That becomes the object of our affection, the object of our worship, and it, then it begins to control us. And that's where sin comes from. And when we are in sin, we simultaneously cannot have joy. They're mutually exclusive. So here's, here's here, let's, let's look at some examples. How many of you have told a white or a black lie in the last year? Okay. Probably most of you, those of you didn't raise your hands, you're just dirty liars. So um, 
or you're unaware. No, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't. You're a very rare individual. Uh, so here's a question. Why? Why? Why did you tell? Think of, think of the time you, you bent the truth, you, you, you didn't share all of the truth, or you just flat-out bold-faced lied. Why? What was, the, what was the motive? What were you trying to gain? Or keep from losing? What was that? So let's think about this. Here's an, here's an example. Let's say, that, let's say that you work in sales. You work in sales. You work in sales and, and uh, your clientele, you're selling widgets, and, and the person that you want to sell these widgets to says, can you get me X number of widgets by the first of the month next month? And you know, you know that your production team and your shipping team probably won't be able to make that order. But you tell them I can do it. But you're lying. You know that you can't do it. You know that you'll be close, but you'll probably be off three or four days, maybe a week. But you tell them this lie. Why? What's the motivating factor? Money could be. So in many cases, people will massage the truth or just flat out lie so that they can gain, they want to make their quota. They want to make their, their numbers so they can get, uh, uh, they can receive their commission, right? But that might not be the only reason. You might not be driven by money. There's another reason why we would lie to someone in that context. We might lie to someone in that context because what we value more than money is the approval of people. We want them to like us. How many of you tend to be that way? You want to please people. So someone says, can you get me these things by? And you, you're thinking, mm, probably not. But you say yes. Why do we say yes? It might not have anything to do with money. It might have everything to do with, I just want you to like me before I leave. And if I tell you no, then that will, that will affect our relationship. This is super common among Christians that like to be nice. How many of you have had a conversation with someone that you care about and they would they and you know you know you should you feel like you should tell them something which is going to be hard to hear and you you tell them the opposite or you just won't tell them the truth at all has anybody ever done that i do that all the time i'm a coward i'm an absolute coward and some of you are like wait a minute you tell people offensive things all the time in fact you get off on offending us that's only because I'm speaking to a large group of people and no one in particular. When I'm speaking to an individual, I'm more likely to be reluctant to be totally honest if I think that honesty is going to cause you not to like me. That's idolatry. It's full-blown idolatry. So that's just one example. That's just one example. Um, I've shared with you that I, I used to have an issue with anger like five minutes ago, it's so, so past tense. Um, no, I've, I have lots of issues. I have lots of idolatry issues. But so Friday night, I went to uh, Carver to the wrestling meet, Iowa versus Penn State. This is a big marquee uh, event. We hadn't beaten Penn State in 10 years. They've won eight of the last nine NCAA titles. Uh, so we've had a drought. And so this is a big meet, and we're favored. We're rated number one. I was rated number one. Penn State is rated number two, number two. So, so Stacy and I, we got tickets. It's been sold out since December. So this is, this is uh, standing room only. It's sold out. Big marquee matchups, big marquee matchups. Now, I'm texting a friend of mine 
I'm texting a friend of mine. We're texting back and forth. It's, uh, it's Friday afternoon. His uh, son-in-law, his son-in-law wrestles for Iowa. He wrestles 165. And he is rated number two. And he's wrestling the defending national champ who's rated number one. So this is, this is a marquee matchup. And now my friend, he's a very, very strong believer. And he's like, hey, we can't make it to the meet. We're going to be watching it from home. We're praying for Alex. That's their son-in-law. Um, you know, uh, we're just praying that Christ is glorified, that he's exalted. And we know that Christ is on the throne and we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. And, and so I, I, I hit that thumbs up emoji you know, back at him. I showed Stacy. said, oh, look what Todd wrote. This is, this is awesome. You know, keeping the, keeping the main thing the main thing, right? Thumbs up emoji. That's so spiritual. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. So I go to Carver, and I leave the main thing in the car. So as soon as I park, I shut the door. The main thing is sitting there on the front seat. And I'm in the, <laughs> I go to Carver, and it starts out great. The first match rolls up the points, tech fall, we're up 5-0. Second match, the bottom drops out. Our guys rated number two, their guys rated number three. Within the first minute of the match, he hurts his knee, our guy. Injury default. He's done. That, and then we lose a team point because one of the coaches has a personality like mine who can't control his temper. And then, and now that's a 10-point swing. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. But I haven't lost my peace because I'm still keeping the main thing the main thing. <laughs> it's not bad yet. So, but things are tense. So we get going and the next match is not good. The next two we win, but we're still behind. So now the big match comes up. Alex and, and Penn State, number two versus number one. So they, there's no score in the first period. And then Alex gets out in the second period. So he's up one nothing, And then he, he locks up. He locks up with this guy from Penn State in what's called an over and under. Now, those of you who don't know wrestling, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Just go with it here. So they're chest to chest. They're chest to chest. They bo- neither one has an advantage. So this could go either way. This is a very dangerous place to be. This is like a Hail Mary pass in football. It's either going to get intercepted or you're going to score a touchdown. And Alex gets launched straight to his back. Right to his back. Fights off his back. He just gave up six points. He's down six to one. He's got a huge hole to dig out of. Huge hole. So he starts battling back, and, and he's a strong Christian, and he loves Jesus, and he wants to win, but that's not his main thing. And he's fighting, and he's battling, he's fighting, and he's battling. And it comes to the end of the second period, and he hits this move. There's a flurry, and he scores two, but the refs don't give him any points. And then the time runs out of second period, and they go to the bench, they go to the table, the scorer's table, to confer whether or not they're, and they're not giving any points. And I'm up on the concourse, the top of the arena with Stacy because she wants an ice cream cone, and we're up there. We're up there, and I'm, at, at that moment, I, I, just, I just completely lost it. I completely lost it. And, and the gorilla, you know, the anger gorilla, he took the bars and he just pulled them apart. He pulled them apart, and then he stepped out of the cage, and then Jesus says, Brooks, come back. And I said, you, you be quiet. And I, I was absolutely, completely out of my mind. Now, some of you are thinking, this is dramatic effect. No, it is not. I said things which are only uttered in the depths of Mordor. I was, I, 
I was back in pre-Christian 1985, Brooks. I was, comp- I was swearing. I was just, I was, ab- this is, they're not giving him points. And, I'm, and that's, that's the tone of voice. That's the volume. And Stacy's like trying to eat her ice cream. She's like, Brooks, you're, you're out of control. I know, they're not giving him points. People, um, so the, you know the barriers up at the top, the yellow barriers? People in the back row are turning around. And Stacy said, Brooks, there are people five and six rows that are turning around. Your volume is louder than 15,000 people. And they're all turning around and looking at you. And I'm completely going insane. Completely going insane. And they finally awarded him the points. But what's... What, what just happened here? What, what, let's diagnose what just took place. I exchanged the glory of God for that which was not significant. It, it's, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. By the way, the next morning I woke up and I was journaling and I was praying and I was repenting and I was embarrassed, and I'm drinking my coffee, and Stacey and I were talking about it the next day, and I said, yeah, I repented of that, and she said, tell me about it, and I was telling her, and she just, she just laughed at me. She goes, I wish I would have videotaped that. I said, that would have been the worst possible thing in the world. So all day long, Stacey, every time she looked at me, she started laughing. <laughs> she just absolutely, she would just, she would look at me and just go, she would just start giggling, and I'm like, what? She's like, I just keep thinking about how stupid you looked up at the concourse of the arena. So that's what idolatry does. Idolatry, what did, what did Paul said? You exchange, and in their thinking they became futile. You became an exponential idiot when you worship idols. And I was on full-blown idolatry display. Fortunately, I was behind most of the people in Carver, and they couldn't see me. But honestly, there were 15,000 of us, and we were all pretty much doing the same thing. I'm just louder than most people. And it's, it's like, oh my goodness. But I had exchanged the glory of the immortal God to that which is created. Now, what did Paul say? Birds, reptiles, and created things. I displayed the glory of God, or exchanged the glory of God for a hawk. And herky at that. That's pathetic. That's pathetic. So you see how subtle this is? One minute, your thumbs up to your buddy about Jesus being the main thing. The next minute, the main thing is left in the car and you're in full-blown idol mode. This is how fast you can go from worshiping Jesus to worshiping any particular idol. Do you see how subtle that is and how dangerous that is? I felt, by the way, so justified in my righteous indignation at the fact they hadn't awarded those two points. I I felt justified. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. So maybe you're not as passionate as I am, but you're every bit as prone to idolatry as I am. So I want to make a resource available to you. This is on our website. It's also, if you have our app, if you don't have our app, you can go to your app store and just type in Grace B3. Grace B3, and our app will come up. This is uh, from the sermon. It's a, it's a sermon resource. It's put together by Tim Keller, and it's called Idols of the Heart. 
It's a resource that helps you identify, understand what idols are, but also help you identify what you, what kind of idolatry you're prone to, and not just what kind of idolatry you're prone to, but also helps you see how the gospel, how the gospel can set you free. Let me tell you how not. We're going to look at how to be set free from it right now. So freedom from idolatry. Before I get to the text, here's how you don't get set free from idols. Just try hard not to focus on idols. That never works. Never works. So let's take a look at the text. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn from God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now there's a lot in this paragraph. I'm not going to cover all of it, but I want to just highlight what's highlighted here. They turned to God from idols. So that's repentance. That's repentance. You, you put your hope in your team being victorious, or you put your hope in uh, this person that you have an affection for returning and reciprocating, so the approval of man, or, you, or financial gain, or getting into that PhD program, or having your, getting the grant, or whatever you're working on. That becomes your driving focus. So you turn from that. It's not that you still don't strive for those things, but you turn from those things as being your source of identity and your source of hope, and you turn from them to the living God. You turn and you place your hope in the living God, which he identifies here, the one true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus Christ. So you place your hope and your faith in Christ, in Christ. Now, here, so there's repentance, but there's also something else. There's also something else. There is a transfer of control. There's a transfer of control. So when we worship idols, we exchange the glory of God for the glory of something else. When we turn from idols, we, we take we're no longer controlled by those idols. Instead, we transfer our control to that which is glorious, which is God. Now, here's the irony. Why don't most people come to Jesus when even though they, they are inclined to believe the, the historical Jesus is real? Why don't people trust him? Why don't people place their faith in him? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of losing control. You see the irony there? The irony is that people don't want to turn from idols because they're afraid that God will control them. All the while, they're being controlled by their idols. They're already enslaved. They're already enslaved. The song that you, you, you sang just a little bit ago, The Joy, one of the verses is, there's freedom though you have captured me. Do you see the irony there? When you turn from idols, you're enslaved to those idols, but you think you're free. Oh, you think you're free, but you are completely enslaved to these idols. And then the reason that idolaters don't turn to Jesus is because they think by turning to Jesus, they'll be controlled and they'll lose their freedom. It's the opposite. Paul says, it is for freedom's sake that you have been set free. Therefore, don't be subjected to a yoke of bondage anymore. It's the exact opposite. Now, I get why people think that. They think that if I gave control, if I willingly give control to Jesus, then I won't be able to run my life. You're completely right. But are you free now as you try to run your life? No, you're still bowing to idols. They still control us. So, and here's the thing. The way idolatry works, the way idolatry works is it, it demands a sacrifice. 
It demands a sacrifice. So you give of yourself. You're willing to sacrifice in the hopes that your idol will deliver for you. But here's the dirty little secret that the idol never tells you. The idol tells you that your sacrifice is going to be much greater than you think it is. And the reward will never, ever satisfy. And that's why idols destroy people and they destroy families and they destroy cultures. It's because they always demand more than you think they're going to take and they never deliver, ever. Now I want you to think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom people are afraid to trust because then they'll lose control. What sacrifice does he demand? Let me answer that question. He doesn't ask you to sacrifice. He sacrifices himself. For the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 verse 14. Paul says that although Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death even death on a cross. And here's the thing. Our Savior does not demand a sacrifice for you so that you can appease Him so that He can give you something. Our, sacrifice, our Savior sacrifices Himself. And He doesn't under-deliver, but He gives Himself and He gives the Spirit and He gives full joy. And our problem is that we don't trust Him to come through for us. So whether or not you are reluctant to trust him for the first time or whether or not you are reluctant to trust him for the sake of obedience as a follower of Christ, all of us are fearful that we'll lose control and he won't deliver. We buy into the same garbage, the same lie that Eve bought into in the garden. When the serpent came and said, he doesn't, re- he, he doesn't have your best interest. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll know good and evil and you'll be just like him. He's holding out. And we think he's holding out. And so we take the fruit. We worship the idols. We exchange the glory of God in the hopes that we'll really be happy. How's that working out for humanity? How's that working out for you? It doesn't work for me. I just look foolish. And hurt other people in the process. That's why Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will provide all these things for you. In other words, if you make the main thing the main thing, he'll give you full and complete joy even in the midst of your affliction. But you got to turn from your idols. And stop sacrificing to them and receive the one sacrifice that was once made for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Receive the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who is eminently glorious and eminently worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that in your patience, you give grace to people who don't ask for it, and who are unworthy of it and are full-blown idolaters. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to the reality of idols so that we can't be deceived by them. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you. There's so many of us who we know intellectually what idols are, and we still keep bowing down to them. 
Lord, forgive us and give us grace. And for those who have not yet trusted you, I pray, Lord, that your grace would lead them into a relationship with you and they would receive that gospel with power, with full conviction of the Holy Spirit and assurance of their faith. Lord, do this for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.